Our guest today has been an environmental reporter for 20 years. His work has appeared in The Nation, National Public Radio, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker, among others. On Michael Krasny's forum on KQED, I recently caught Mark Hertzgard talking about what his travels around the world have uncovered regarding global warming. He was discussing his new book, Hot, Living for the Next 50 Years on Earth. It was a fascinating talk, so when we discovered that our friends at Newman Communication were publicizing this work, we signed on. Mark Hertzgard has five other books to his credit, including Earth Odyssey, Around the World in Search of Our Environmental Future, and The Eagle's Shadow, Why America Fascinates and Infuriates the World. He joins us today to talk about HOT, Living the Next 50 Years on Earth. The book looks at what is going to happen in the coming decades and what we will need to do in order to cope. It's our great pleasure to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Mark Hertzgard. Hi, thanks for having me. Mark, I was intrigued to learn from your book that you were inspired to write it in part from a 2005 interview you did with Sir David King, Chief Science Advisor to the British government. What did David King say that impressed you? David King essentially changed the whole paradigm of uh, my understanding of the climate problem, which I had been covering for 15 years by the year 2005. And all that time during the 1990s, climate change was seen as this very dangerous but also fairly distant threat and one that we could prevent if we got our act together in time and reduced emissions and so forth. So it was always portrayed as a as an issue that would affect future generations. And Sir David uh, said, well, that's changed now, and we now uh, believe that climate change has already been triggered by global warming, and as a result of the inertia in the climate system, that in turn means that uh, climate change is now locked in, uh, that higher temperatures and more extreme weather events are now locked in for at least another uh, 50 years going into the future. And since I had just then uh, become a dad for the first time, that message had special resonance with me, that this was no longer a problem that was going to threaten only future generations, but it was threatening uh, my then five-month-old daughter. And so that was what led me to write the book, Hot, to figure out what exactly uh, was coming and, above all, what we can do to uh, prepare for it. Well, your book is not too much about the, quote, controversy, unquote, over global warming, thank God. Uh, we've noted on this show in the past that there's a great PR machine unleashed to sow doubt about climate data with some disturbing success. Uh, let's talk about the, uh, the global warming deniers. Sure. I've been following them for quite a long time. And in fact, uh, when I interviewed Sir David King, I was on assignment to Vanity Fair magazine to write a piece on climate change. And in the course of that uh, article, I... Um, uh, outed one of the top scientists who has been part of the denier um, machine on climate change. And I pointed out that this same scientist, a guy by the name of Dr. Frederick Seitz, had also been a top scientist on behalf of the tobacco industry back in the 70s and 80s when the tobacco industry was trying to sow doubt about uh, whether smoking cigarettes caused cancer. Dr. Seitz took $45 million from R.J. Reynolds uh, tobacco company during those years to do health research that somehow never got around to saying that smoking cigarettes <laughs> might cause cancer. And that's pretty much the same role that he played in the 90s and afterwards 
uh, on behalf of the climate uh, companies, which was to say that, you know, it's, it's not so clear. They just wanted to throw doubt into the public mind and as a result uh, to blunt the, the urgency of political reform and doing something about greenhouse gas emissions. We should note rather sadly that uh, that the, the, the politically conservative parties in other countries are really not in a di- denier mode when it comes to addressing global warming, and this is something that seems sort of unique to the American Republican Party. It is striking, isn't it? If you look overseas to our closest allies in Europe, for example, Britain and Germany and France, all of whom right now happen to be headed by right-of-center political parties, and none of those right-of-center political parties in Germany or Britain or France have questioned the science behind climate change for 15 years and more. Let's remember, it was Margaret Thatcher, arguably the you know, the mother of modern conservatism, the former British prime minister, who gave the first big speech about global warming on the international stage back in 1990. So it's only in the United States that the climate question has been politicized. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's important for people to remember here because there's this sense of, oh, well, there's all of this disagreement and who really knows? Well, no, there's not all this disagreement. <laughs> only within the United States is there the perception of disagreement. Well, there, there are quite a few ifs in, in trying to predict what the Earth's climate exactly is, is going to do. But can you spell out for us what is most likely to happen if only minimally effective actions are taken in the next few decades? Sure. It's very important what you say, that, that uh, there's no certainty. And uh, that, of course, was used by the climate deniers for a long time to say, well, if there's no certainty, there's no need to act. Well, what we've now learned, and, and Sir David King's uh, interview was a good example, that whole idea of no certainty cuts both ways. Things can turn out to be better than you expect, but they can also turn out to be a lot worse. And that's what happened in this case. The uh, global warming triggered climate change a hundred years sooner than scientists expected. And so what we now know uh, is that, in fact, I just saw this morning a a peer-reviewed study in the American Geophysical Union showing that we are now certain to have at least a two degrees Celsius temperature rise by the year 2100 on average over the world. And that means 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That will make our uh, climate hotter than it has been ever in the course of human civilization, the the last 10,000 years during which we developed our agriculture, during which we settled most of our big cities are on seacoasts. We now know that there's going to be at least three feet of sea level rise. That will be a big issue, including, by the way, here in California and specifically for Sacramento and the, 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 uh, the Delta region, because that sea level rise is going to put a lot of pressure on the uh, earthen levees in the delta that are now so important to uh, not just the agriculture there, but especially to the water supply in this state. You know, so much of the water in this state passes through the delta on its way from north to south, and if those levees break and salt water gets in there, that's going to be a big, big problem. So that's just a couple of the impacts that we're looking at in the future. One other one specifically here to California that I'll mention is that we're probably going to lose most of the snowpack atop the Sierra Nevada mountains, which, of course, is a a major source of fresh water for our state, not just for drinking, but also for agriculture out there in the the Central Valley. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to deal with that. And I want to emphasize 
that there are solutions to this. In fact, about 80% of my book, Hot, is focused on solutions to dealing with these impacts. Uh, existing solutions, too, not theoretical possibilities, but solutions that are being put in place by cutting-edge leaders around the world today. Unfortunately, so far, those leaders are the exception. We need to make them the rule, and I hope my book will help do that. Let's talk about some cutting-edge actions they're taking. You write in the book at length about what the Dutch are doing to protect their coastlines. Uh, They're committed to serious long-range planning, more perhaps than almost any other country. Uh, Talk about what you learned about their attitude and how they're planning to fight um, the sea level rise as they anticipate. Sure, I'm glad you used the word attitude because that turns out to be really, really important. For a lot of years, the thought in the, within the field has been that, okay, uh, if we do have to adapt to climate change, uh, what's going to matter is how much money we have and how much technological prowess we have. So the rich countries will do better than the poor countries. And while there's some truth to that, my research indicates that far more important than just money or just technology is what I call the social context the attitude that a given society has and the kind of of, uh, cultural and political mechanisms that are in place. In the Netherlands case, you've got uh, a country that has been dealing with uh, water for 800 years, managing water for 800 years. They literally uh, kind of created the Netherlands by managing the flow of water because it was just basically marshes and and swampland until they figured out how to, to move water in the directions that they wanted to. And so now, with that as a history, the Dutch have have, uh, put in place and are implementing a 200-year plan for coping with climate change. 200 years, which is almost inconceivable here in the United States. We find it hard to plan 200 days in advance. Uh, And that's what the Dutch are doing, and they're spending about a billion and a half uh, dollars equivalent every year to increase the strength of their dikes, uh, to uh, add and, and to widen rivers. And above all, what's most impressive, I think, is that they are taking some very, very tough-minded political decisions, including retreating from certain areas that are seen as too vulnerable or too costly to defend, and forcing property holders to move out of those places. Now, they compensate them. They do pay them for moving out of their farmland or their coastal development areas, but it is not uh, voluntary. It is an order on the part of the, the culture. And what's interesting is because the Dutch have been making those kinds of decisions for 800 years and they have a consensus-based decision-making model in that country, they're able to get away with this. People trust the government to do the right thing. They feel like they're involved. They even are willing to pay taxes uh, and increased taxes in order to pay for this stuff. That is the kind of social context that makes successful adaptation possible. And unfortunately, it's a context that is absent in much of the United States. Well, I was intrigued by your talking about the Dutch attitude about, in some cases, retreating. You discussed New Orleans and how it's the disaster there in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. There's much talk about what needed to be done to fix the Mississippi's levees. And yet the Army Corps of Engineers seems to be determined to try and protect everybody, which means in the end, perhaps they're they're not able to protect anybody. Yeah, it's an interesting situation down in Louisiana. Uh, I've just returned from there. I was there about a week ago, and I've been visiting there a lot, both for the book and since the book. And, um, you know, the Dutch have been very much involved down there as well. And uh, it is a, it's a real challenge. Um, things, some things have gotten better since the uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, in terms of the protection from the levees. 
largely because of, and again, this is the role of social context, largely because of local involvement and activism on the part of citizens who are getting in there and going to the public meetings and, uh, you know, frankly harassing the Army Corps of Engineers and uh, making sure that the media reports on their shortcomings. And as a result, the Corps, to its credit, has done a better job on repairing levees since Katrina than it did beforehand. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a long ways to go. And your question also points to another one of the problems, that still the Army Corps' approach to almost everything is to build gigantic levees, and that is not going to work. Uh, What you really need in Louisiana is to restore the uh, wetlands and the cypress swamps south of New Orleans, between New Orleans and the, the ocean, because those... Uh, wetlands and cypress swamps act like speed bumps, and they are far more important in terms of slowing down a hurricane storm surge than the actual levees that protect uh, major populated areas like New Orleans. So, And there it's very problematic because you've got a situation where the local officials in Louisiana are far more interested in continuing to cater to uh, the oil and gas industry and uh, to local development than they are to doing what really needs to be done, which is to, to restore those wetlands. You know, it's very difficult, again, social context, you, the, 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 the three top office holders in Louisiana, Governor Jindal and uh, Senator Vitter, who's a Republican, and Senator Landrieu, who's a Democrat, all of them, they either openly deny the science of climate change in the case of Vitter and Jindal, or they foot drag on doing any of anything about it, as Senator Landry has done. When you've got that kind of, of uh, so-called leadership at the top of the state, it's very difficult to make progress on this. As one of my, in fact, sources in the book, in fact, a Dutchman named Richard Klein says, it is very difficult to adapt to a problem that you don't want to admit exists. The book is hot, living to the next 50 years on Earth, and we're talking with its author, environmental reporter, Mark Hertzgard. Mark, this program's heard across Northern California, KDVS Davis, KZFR Chico. I'm keen to talk a bit about uh, what climate change means to our local flood risks. And I, and I really had to laugh in <laughs> reading your book when you talked about mentioning to a real estate salesperson out in the Tomas that you read in the Sacramento Bee the levees were not very strong, and she assured you they would never put a planned community in an area that was dangerous. And I, I didn't get that you were completely reassured by that. <laughs> Yeah, I I left her name out, or at least her full name, because uh, I I felt a little sorry for her, I suppose. But, yeah, I mean, that's the sort of attitude, oh, no, we'd never do something that unsafe. Well, I was surrounded by evidence that they'd done something exactly that unsafe. There was the Four Seasons, uh, so-called an active adult community for people age 55 or better, but they are right next to uh, the flawed ancient levees along the river there. And Sacramento... And I I don't say this to frighten people, but just to make sure that they're aware. You know, Sacramento was second only to New Orleans in the uh, level of vulnerability to flooding at the time of Hurricane Katrina. And that's because Sacramento, um, essentially, in the words of of, uh, one of your top local officials, it's that Sacramento is located at the bottom of a 27,000-square-mile watershed, and all that water has to squeeze by Sacramento on its way to the sea. Uh, to their credit, and that, that was the words of Stein Buer, who's the executive director of the Sacramento Area Flood Control Agency, and to his credit, 
and that of his colleagues, they have been quite clear about this risk and that uh, more needs to be done to protect Sacramento, and that means uh, strengthening the the levees and strengthening the the dams in the the vicinity, but above all, it means taking longer-term measures to reduce the risk. And uh, we've made some progress on that. Former Governor Schwarzenegger uh, pushed through a bond measure that... uh, about $5 billion worth of work that will go into strengthening the levees. You can see some of that actually right along the, the banks of the Sacramento and the American Rivers right there outside of, of and indeed right along the downtown area of uh, Sacramento proper. But Natomas is just a, a disaster waiting to happen, and we just have to hope that we don't get the kind of floods uh, anytime soon that are projected under the climate science uh, models because uh, right now, Natomas is far, far from prepared. When you mentioned that uh, 80% of your book is about what we can do, and I'd like to spend the time we have left talking about some specifics here and, and maybe start with the, uh, the media and the battle for public opinion. I'd ask how we can combat the carbon lobby and its deniers head on or, or ask if, if you think that's necessary at all. You know, I do think it's always important to to stand up for the truth, and unfortunately there are a lot of people who are still being misled by the carbon lobby and by the terrible reporting coming out of my business, the journalism business. So I, I think that's important, but I also think that um, nothing succeeds like good news. And so the solutions that we're talking about that are outlined in this book, Hot, again, they are existing solutions. And let's learn from that rather than wasting a lot of time arguing with people that, frankly, at this point, if you still don't believe in man-made climate change, I don't think you're ever going to believe because, you know, virtually every major scientific organization in the world has has said it's true. All the political parties and the major political parties, except for the Republicans in this country, agree that it's true. You know, if you don't believe by now, you've decided you're not going to believe. At the same time, these solutions are out there, and they are working today, and they are making economies better, not worse. Let's talk quickly about the, the greatest example here in the United States, which is up in Seattle, King County, Washington State, uh, which happens to have a lot of the same uh, challenges that we do here in California, because so much of their water supply comes from snowmelt off of the Cascade Mountains to the east of them. They are looking uh, at, at, again, many of the same impacts that, that we will, with a threatened, uh, both the threat of bigger floods in the short term and a threat of scarcity of water supply in the long term. Now, what have they done up there? The main thing they've done is to, quote, ask the climate question. Ask the climate question. That was the, the, the mantra of the uh, former county executive up there, a man named Ron Sims. And what that meant was for the county government and uh, local officials to ask the climate scientists at the University of Washington, who happen to be world-class, they say, what are the climatic conditions we're going to face in the year 2050? What kind of temperatures, what kind of precipitation, and so forth? And what does that mean in terms of flooding, drought, etc.? And then work backwards from that data set to figure out what kinds of adaptation measures should be put in place today. And so one of the things that they've done in King County is to order the Port of Seattle to raise its infrastructure by three feet uh, to prepare for sea level rise. Another thing they've done is to uh, quite uh, set out a comprehensive plan for strengthening the river levees that run through King County. And uh, they've even raised local taxes to pay for the improvement of those levees. And the way that they did that and did it in a politically popular way because Ron Sims got reelected three times as county executive, 
was they went to the local businesses in that area and they said, look, here's what we're looking at in terms of future flooding risks. And if this area floods, the local economy will lose $46 million a day in business. So would you rather pay an extra $40 a year in property taxes to increase these levies, or would you rather pay $46 million a day if and when those levies fail? And as a result, the, the, uh, the levies are being improved. I saw this with my own eyes. Uh, and the key point here is that uh, when Ron Sims, the county executive, said he was doing this, Although he's a, he's probably you would probably classify him as a uh, liberal Democrat. He also was very pro-business, and he says, "I'm doing this for business reasons. There will be winners and losers as climate change advances, and I want King County to be a winner." We think that the kinds of uh, measures we're putting in place today will mean that businesses in the future will want to come to King County. Why? Because we'll have levees that work. We'll have a water supply that's reliable. We'll have a green workforce. We'll have a port that is able to function. We'll have a modern economy that uh, will not see the kinds of difficulties that, for example, you saw in, in New Orleans and Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. So that kind of business thinking, uh, which, by the way, is replicated in, in much of the rest of the world in realizing that you've got to get out in front of the green economy if you want to have an economic future in the 21st century, that's the kind of thinking that we need a lot more of. And frankly, I think we can be somewhat optimistic about that here in California because uh, both the previous governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, understood that, and now Democrat Jerry Brown. Of course, Jerry Brown, as uh, governor back in the 1970s, already recognized the role of, of, uh, of green energy and economics. So I think we can do that, but it is going to take an awful lot more pushing from the grassroots level here in California. I want to ask you about the carbon tax, and many people favor that as a direct method of cutting emissions, getting market forces pushing in the right direction. It seems like a great idea in theory, but it's turning out to be harder to arrange politically. Where do you stand on on a carbon tax? Uh, A carbon tax is one of the ways that we can do what absolutely needs to be done, which is to uh, put in place a rising price on carbon emissions, the pollution that causes global warming. And you're right that a lot of people support this, including uh, George Shultz, who, of course, is a rock-ribbed Republican who served under uh, Ronald Reagan and under both Bush presidencies. Uh, He's just one of the people who says that we need a carbon tax because it will allow the marketplace, rather than government mandates, to to do this. I think that's that's a wise idea. I do think, though, that the way you do it is important um, because if you increase that tax, and you're not careful, you can hurt low-income people, and you can also create a political backlash against, obviously, people saying, oh, I don't want to pay taxes. But there's an interesting uh, proposal for how to do that that would garner, I think, very widespread political support, which is something called uh, tax and dividend, where you increase the price of carbon emissions so that would result in a higher price for gasoline, higher price for fuel oil, and so forth. But the revenues that come from that tax, instead of going to Washington and just being frittered away in pork barrel politics, the revenues would be returned immediately to the American people. So however much the tax went up, which we would do over time, that's how much money the American people would get back. Uh, Each one would get a check every month or every year for a certain amount of money. And then the average citizen could use that extra money from the tax to reduce their energy consumption by probably what everybody would do in the the short term would be to invest in energy efficiency because that's so lucrative 
um, you would get better insulation in your house and better windows and so forth. And, uh, you know, the kind of profits that you can make on that are extraordinary, which is, by the way, what corporate America already knows. Uh, a little company called BP, for example, they invested $20 million in energy efficiency in 1999. Three years later, they had saved $650 million in energy costs. That's 32 times more uh, profit. And, you know, the mafia doesn't get those kinds of returns. That's the kind of profit that energy efficiency provides. And I think that's what a lot of Americans would be able to do so that they would come out both economically ahead and environmentally ahead. So, yes, I agree with the carbon tax, but let the proceeds go back to the public, not to the politicians in Washington. Mark, we're running short on time. I do want to address one thing, at least in passing, has been in the news lately, nuclear power. Your, your book doesn't talk a great deal about it, but you have written a book about it previously, Nuclear Inc., the men and money behind nuclear energy. I, I gather that you're not anti-nuke per se, but just see it as perhaps being too slow to meet our coming needs compared to efficiency uh, increases, which are, which are rapid. That's, that's pretty close, yeah. That is what I actually say at the end of HOT, which is that uh, it's ironic, but uh, going nuclear would actually make climate change worse. Worse. Uh, not because of safety or, or weapons proliferation concerns, though those are real, but because of the economics of it. Nuclear just costs so much money, and it is so slow to get online. You know, the average nuclear power plant takes at least 10 years to build and comes in way over budget. Now, if you took that same amount of money and instead invested it in energy efficiency, um, you know, better motors and better uh, insulation and, and light bulbs and so forth, all the things we've all heard about, you would reduce emissions seven times more then you would reduce emissions from that one nuclear power plant seven times more. So if we spend money on nuclear in a world of limited capital investment, that's investing in the wrong, the slowest, uh, and least powerful uh, weapon against climate change. So it would actually make the problem worse. What we really need, I'm not, you know, maybe in the long run we'll need more nuclear, but in the short to medium run there's no question that investing in energy efficiency is a far, far better deal for all of us. Well, talking about making investments, uh, you and others have talked about something maybe analogous to the Apollo program, a kind of green Apollo program to really uh, push money in the right direction. How would you define that? It would be very much similar to what President Kennedy did in the 1960s when he said, Let's, uh, this country needs to put a man on the moon within 10 years. And it was that effort was led by the government, but uh, it was the government in partnership with uh, private businesses and universities and, of course, the, the, the average citizen. It was a real public effort. And that's what we would need, I think, uh, to get us off of uh, the carbon-based fuels. It's, it's a 10-year deadline, an all-out effort on the part of the government, with some uh, increased spending, but mainly just changing the incentives. You know, right now we, are, we give about twice as much incentive for uh, fossil fuels and nuclear as we do to genuine renewable energy. So changing those kinds of things, not spending more money, but spending it more intelligently. And I think that uh, that kind of green Apollo project uh, is really uh, probably the way to go to, to uh, get out ahead of this problem. There's a lot of people talking about it, but it will require a real push from below. 
The powers that be in Washington do not want to do that. They're very happy with the way things are now. And so if you really want to see that kind of shift, it means people are going to have to get involved politically and push for really different kinds of policies and, frankly, different kinds of, of office holders. The only thing that gets politicians' attention, I think, is when you vote them out of office. And we're going to have to see a lot more of that, I think, before we really make progress here. One well, in talking of pushing from below and individual actions as we close, I note that you've praised what young people are doing across at college campuses across the world and the fact that this is really on, on the front burner among young people. Uh, what efforts that individuals can take do you really want to encourage most strongly? I think, of course, changing your light bulbs and changing your, your, your daily patterns is, is important uh, for many reasons, but it can only be the first step. At the end of the day, uh, those kinds of individual lifestyle changes are only going to uh, go so far. What we really need is to change the big policy levers in the society. You know, we need to put a price on carbon. Right now it is absolutely free for a carbon polluter to put carbon pollution into the atmosphere and to ruin the atmosphere for my daughter and for the rest of what I call Generation Hot, the kids who are growing up now. That is absolutely legal. We need that to stop. We need to put a price on that so that... Uh, and believe me, once we do put a price on it, the corporations and the others who are, who are polluting it will do a lot less polluting. Uh, so that's just one of the, the key policy changes that we need. And as I say, the only way we're going to get those policy changes is with much, much more pressure from below. And uh, we've got a, uh, another set of elections coming up next year. And I think that uh, that is a real opportunity, not just for young people, but for everyone to get involved in the political process in a very loud and boisterous way, not just, you know, uh, voting uh, when on Election Day or um, writing the occasional letter to your uh, congressman or something, but really getting out in the streets and uh, demanding a very, very different approach to this topic and demanding that, that uh, politicians take it seriously. Well, Mark, final question. I know that a lot of listeners are going to want to, to read more about this in addition to uh, maybe uh, checking out your book. Do you have any other websites you want to send people to and, and maybe, maybe one of your own? Sure. People are very welcome to go to my website, which is just markhertzgard.com. But the other one that I would suggest is the Facebook page for Generation Hot. Generation Hot is my phrase for the, for the young people, uh, my daughter and the, the other young people under 25 years of age who are going to be really facing the brunt of this problem in the years to come and who, as you mentioned, thank goodness, are also the ones who are uh, in some ways doing the most right now to fight it. Uh, we want to support that. We want to help them to, to push for much tougher policies at all levels of government on this. And so please come to the Facebook page for Generation Hot, and uh, we'll get you involved. We've been speaking with Mark Hertzgard about his excellent book, Hot, Living to the Next 50 Years on Earth. Mark, thanks so much for speaking with us, and hope we can have you on again. be my pleasure. Thanks again.